In the Ring with Eusebius Merkaiser. Eusebius Merkaiser. Welcome to another edition of In the Ring with Eusebius Merkaiser. Some of you might have seen on the front page of the Sunday Times recently, that is, the edition of the 27th of November 2022, the headline screaming, Parents of Rodine Bullies in Ugly School Fight. It's a horrible, horrible story. And it's a story of alleged swearing and screaming outside this prestigious school as a apparently reality TV star had tried to attack, supposedly, the mother of her daughter's alleged victim, a victim of bullying at the school. Now, this is a very serious incident at one of the country's most famous, prestigious and most expensive schools, Rodine, an independent school here in Johannesburg, where apparently you pay up to 155,000 rand a year. And I'm sure that's before we even talk about all the extras that inevitably make that kind of payment balloon. Makes you wonder whether there's returns on the investment when you read this kind of story. We live in a country in which we have high levels of violence, gratuitous violence, and many forms of violence. Bullying is one of them. And we will never deal with a culture of violence if we don't nip in the bud from an early age when it comes to early childhood development, primary school education in particular, and we're talking here about learners who are 10 or 11 years old, reportedly, if we don't deal developmentally and ethically with bullying adequately and make sure that we redirect the developmental path of a learner that might be a bully or one that may be a victim of bullying. So what I'm going to do is to bring you a series of podcast episodes on In The Ring over the next couple of days, maybe slightly longer, depending on how my live ongoing investigation goes. And I'm going to approach it in two ways, and it's slightly differently to what we normally do on this podcast. Most of what we do, and I appreciate your supporting it, is, of course, to try and create meaning, to interpret, to frame critical discussion, to do book interviews, to discuss ethical and political issues with interesting people. But I'm not an investigative journalist. And yet in this particular story, I just found myself not just reading the Sunday Times article, but before that article had landed, I had already managed through very little effort initially, and then I had to, of course, start digging like an actual digger, an actual investigative journalist, come into contact with some of the communication, some of the reports involved, and it's a whole mess that's played out at the school over the last couple of weeks, and quite frankly, longer. And so part of what I'm going to be doing in the next couple of episodes is to see whether you and I can get clarity on the timeline of events, factually what actually happened at the school and what is still happening. And then side by side, we're going to do the normal Eusebius stuff and ask the interpretive and the meaning-creating questions. What is the big picture? What are the issues that we need to drill down into? And then doing the actual drilling down into those issues. So... 
It is about Rodin in detail. But I've chosen Rodin not because I'm trying to undermine this particular prestigious school. I have very close friends who've gone to the school and I have good friends of mine who are part of the school community, who are parents of the school, um, at the school, and one or two of the members of the of the board that, that I know. So I've got goodwill for the school, if anything. But I think the reality is that unless we take a couple of schools, whether it's St. Andrews College and Grahamstown, where we should have done more to learn lessons that can be generalized across the country, Pretoria Girls High many years ago with Hairgate, Parktown Boys in Johannesburg uh, that was in the news after the most unfortunate and unnecessary death of a pupil. If we don't put the spotlight properly on cases where schools are in the news and it just becomes a moment in the news cycle, then the institutional and the habitual problems, the patterns at those individual schools and across schools across the country will never be changed. And our schools will forever produce malfunctioning matriculants that are then sent into the world and eventually become problematic adults in the workplace, in the home, and in public spaces. So that is why I'm focusing on Rodin. I'm not trying to produce titillating journalism. I think it matters journalistically what goes on at our schools, both public institutions as well as independent schools. In this first of the series of, of episodes on Rodin, I'm going to do my best to slow down a basic description of what the news issues are. After that, I'm going to tell you what the themes are that I will be exploring in subsequent episodes. And then lastly, I'm going to play for you a recording of an interview with the head of department of the Gauteng Education Department, who spoke to me a little bit earlier. And then after that, I'm going to comment on that interview before telling you what the focus will be in part two of the series that focuses on Rodine. I think a good starting point is simply to tell you the basics, which is a good foundation to build on, that was in the Sunday Times in an article that had been written based on his own legwork done by Sabeloskiti, who is, of course, one of the country's best investigative journalists. And yes, I'm biased as a colleague of mine, but many of you will know from when I was on 702 in particular how much love and appreciation I had for his work. And whenever I could with my producers, we tried to have Sabela on as often as possible because He's a, he's a good, he's an, he's an excellent journalist. And if you read this article, which you can still do by going to timeslive.co.za forward slash sunday.times dash times, or just Google the Sunday Times, South African Sunday Times, you will see this story with a headline, Parents of Rodin Bullies in Ugly School Fight. Now, there are many ways in, in trying to set the scene for you. But I'm going to take my cue from the Sunday Times article before I tell you some of some of the additional issues that I've started exploring from an investigation point of view. The most immediate 
trigger for this becoming a front page story in our most influential weekly paper is that on Friday, police had to be called to the school Friday afternoon after what the Sunday Times described as a fracas that involved high-profile parents of two 11-year-olds. The one, the one girl is allegedly a bully. The other one is her victim. And the parents of these children found themselves, and that's being kind by using the passive voice because clearly they had agency, they engaged in, would be more appropriate to say, um, some really spectacularly unacceptable behavior in front of the children. Um, and it's hard to keep it straight without commenting. And that's also why I'm doing it in podcast style, because I'm going to weave comment in between the factual detail. But I will, I will flag it as such, um, even though it will be clear when I'm, when I'm commenting. But anyway, be that as it may, they were involved in scenes that Sabello described that involved, quote, loud swearing, shoving, and threats of further violence. And that's why police had to be called to the scene. Now, what is the genesis of all this? Um, and there's, there's a, a reference to the genesis here, but this is where some of the digging needed, needed to, to happen. And I'm pretty sure that this is an ongoing investigation for Sabello himself. But from my vantage point, what, it, what is it that I've been able to, to piece together so far um, by way of setting the scene for you? A child, and please be mindful, by the way, that in terms of the paramount interest of children, which is a principle that should always guide us in media coverage about children, I will be choosing my words very carefully to minimize any opportunity to reveal the identity of these children because they need to be protected, even though, quite sadly, the behavior of their parents is such that some persons might figure out who the families are. That doesn't give us permission journalistically to make it easy for you to figure it out. We will still do what is ethically responsible, and that is to not mention the actual names. But there's a family that's new to the school who arrived late in the academic year in recent months. And their child had started complaining to mom and dad that a group of girls at the school had treated them in such a manner that they in fact felt at a subjective level that they do not belong at the school and they would come home showing increasing signs of being distressed. They even created material that suggested they were, the victim that is, thinking of dying by suicide. So, suicidation, evidence of suicidation emerged, which gave a sense of the seriousness of their experience of abuse at school. An educational psychologist that had interacted with the child had obviously to make some factual findings 
plus professional observations about the experience of the child. And I will come back to that educational psychological intervention. But what was very clear and subsequent episodes, I will discuss more of this, these revelations. What is very clear is that the child that had experienced the bullying had seriously thought of suicidality. And it also emerged that the reason they started thinking of suicide is because they expressed explicitly to at least one adult in this process that they wanted the alleged bullies to know exactly what it is that she was going through. So that's how we we ended up in a situation with parents that obviously, as any parents would be, are completely, completely distraught themselves that they have enrolled their child at a school with an amazing reputation. And lo and behold, this is what has surfaced. They alert the school to these experiences as reported by their child. And an education psychologist comes up with a report and findings. And a process should then be underway to make sure that obviously the rights of the victim to a safe environment in which they can learn every day is entrenched and respected and upheld. The school, in turn, then sets up a process by which to evaluate these claims. And it turns out that upon a whole series of investigation-related moves on the part of the school, which I'll come back to in a future episode, this is just the scene-setter episode, that they find them guilty of a number of different aspects of bullying. Uh, One girl, for example, is found guilty of four charges against her and another of five out of six. And these are regarded as gross misconduct. Um, And they get various forms of punishment that's meted out. One of the children... Has been at, had been at home for at least 21 days and doing learning online. And the parent of that child had alerted the department that the child is at home and that's compromising their right to education. So what do we have at this stage? At this stage, you've got parents of children that had been found guilty of infractions that apparently go against the code of conduct of the school. There are tough sanctions that had been meted out, including that they be at home and learn from home. And you've got parents of those children either appealing the findings and the sanctions, and in addition to that, feeling as if the parents of the alleged victim had in fact gotten away with their own behaviour that was inappropriate in a range of ways, in a parallel set of counter-accusations. So that's what you deal with. So you've got a whole environment that have now 
morphed into an adversarial environment where you've got parents whose passions are running completely amok and who are being a combination of legalistic, running to the school of their own accord, despite the school asking them to not enter the premises. And you've got this back and forth between each set of parents and the school and some of the parents, most recently, reaching out to the Department of of Basic Education here in Gauteng. And whenever there were moments where the parents were in the same space as on Friday, you then have the possibility of a Molotov cocktail being thrown by one side, which apparently happened when one parent went on a bus after an extramural activity, um, demanded that their child be entrusted back to their care because one of the other parents that they obviously do not see from their point of view as someone that should be near their own child had also gone on this excursion to go and watch a pantomime. And lo and behold, before you know it, police had to be called to the scene. So that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Okay, that's it by way of scene setter. What are the issues and how are we going to treat this over the next couple of episodes and why does it matter? For me, the first big question that comes to mind is, what were the institutional duties of the school to ensure a safe environment? Did they meet those duties? If not, why not? And if they had, how do we still have a situation of parents behaving badly, children experiencing suicidation, and bullies, apparent bullies, not having interventions to help them to recover their own humanity and be back on a proper healthy developmental path? Those are critical questions about the school. I've reached out to the school. Someone advised the school to not speak to the media, and specifically to Eusebius MacKaiser. They make a tactical mistake, which I'll come back to in a future episode. You can only recover from this kind of bad publicity by being principled, truthful, and transparent. Not by playing complicated media games, trying to be clever with crisis communication. And most certainly, and I know that there are members of the board listening to me right now, if you are putting the reputation of your school ahead of the paramount interests of the children, you are making a massive mistake because you are only going to be responsible yourself for having a reputation of being corporatist rather than being child-centered in your approach to dealing with bullying allegations. You have to take it on the chin. doesn't matter if it's tough when you get asked tough questions by a journalist, a broadcaster, a podcaster. doesn't matter. You have an ethical duty to answer those questions so that all the stakeholders of the school and society at large within which the school is embedded can know with maximum transparency what is going on, how are you treating the ongoing issues, how have you dealt with similar issues in the past. And you make both an ethical error as well as a tactical error by avoiding the media. 
the story is not going to go away just because you don't want to speak to me or to my colleagues. It's not going to go away. All you're doing is depriving yourself of an opportunity to be fairly heard in terms of your own version institutionally of how you've handled this matter. So your late night conversations about how to keep completely mum is going to bite you in the proverbial behind as an institution. Don't do it. It's advice I can give you for free. Even if we thought about you as a brand, which is a horrible way of looking at this because there are children involved here, it is a stupid move on the part of a brand in trouble to choose silence or to behave like politicians and say, the matter is subjudicate, there's a process underway, uh, we'll talk afterwards. Nothing stops you in law or ethically from talking about an ongoing internal DC or even a legal process. If your truths are going to check out in court, then they will check out in the court of public opinion as well. And you don't have to worry about inconsistency in your testimony and what you say in interviews if you are confident that you can, at 3 o'clock in the morning, say consistently what you had said at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in an interview and at 10 o'clock in the morning in a disciplinary legal or quasi-legal process. So the way the school is thinking about this is a complete misstep, and that on its own is something I'm going to come back to. So that's a massive issue. Institutional accountability. How did the headmistress behave? Was it proper leadership? Should there be consequences? Was there a failure to create an environment that is conducive to safe and healthy learning? That is a massive big theme we're going to explore in this series. The second big issue we're going to deal with, which I don't think has yet surfaced properly as, let's call it an angle, are adults behaving like children? And it's an awkward but an important awkward conversation. I mean, if I'm going to be paying hundreds of thousands of rand for my child's education, I damn definitely would want to be at school and go and see what they're doing at important functions, for example. The idea of being banned from going to my child's school particularly when I'm paying that amount of money, I mean, obviously that will rile me up, right? But presumably there are policies, rules, codes of behavior that you sign up for. And there's a question here about a certain kind of entitlement on the part of particularly powerful parents that may be powerful because of money, powerful because of political connections. And those aspects of this case must be explored. Quite apart from asking questions around the institutional culpability of the school, we've got to ask some tough questions about parents behaving badly. I've got some sympathy for parents on both sides of of this issue, but I think it's important that we get a grip on that. Thirdly, we need to talk about bullying. What is bullying? What is not bullying? And I've got a fantastic guess for you that will help us to puzzle through that question. I was flabbergasted, as much as I like him as a person, by the quoted remarks from one of the spokespeople in government in the Sunday Times article, which gives the impression, on behalf of the education department, that the issues at the school are trivial in terms of the merits of the alleged bullying acts. And we're going to go into those details over the next couple of days. That this could have been handled quite quickly, says one of the fathers of one of the alleged bullies. And that's a sentiment that is also echoed by the Department of Education. But it raises an important question 
that experts who work with children and experts who are experts on bullying and violence need to help us to navigate, particularly in an era where there are new technologies that children have access to and grow up with that you and I might not have when we were children. What constitutes bullying? What is mere taunting? What is innocent gaming? What is, you're just not cool enough to be my friend? At what point does that become bullying? And under what circumstances is that something that, quite frankly, no one should lose sleep over? It is, quote-unquote, just what children do. And there are some really complex questions there, definitional questions, substantial questions, behavioral issues. And I've already spoken to an expert on the matter who has agreed to be my guest in the second episode. Um, and, and I really think that's going to be an episode that every single person with children and trusted into their care must listen to. It was one of those pre-interview interviews where I said to the guest, stop, you, you are just so brilliant. I, I don't want to lose any of this. I wish I'd hit the record button instead of us prepping for the, the, the actual recording. So episode two, I'm already telling you, is going to be focusing on this question of what constitutes bullying. And then the last issue sets me up for what I now want you to listen to. Was there political interference in the running of the school and did the Department of Basic Education, as a result of the connections of some of the parents to the department, strong-arm the school into letting the bully back, even though the school, by its own policies and processes, had not regard the child as ready to come back in terms of the safety of all the other children, and in particular, the victim of bullying. There's a massive question here, whether or not there's a form of political capture of the school that had happened, because some of the parents are powerful. One of the dads is a high-ranking official within the state, and one of the moms and one of the other dads just have a crapload of money and a lot of social influence. And could have picked up the phone, I don't know, could have picked up the phone and easily have, have managed to get the department to act with a level of swiftness that the average parent sitting in Aldo's complaining about not having enough teachers at school could not get the department to act on immediately. So there is an important question around that. But I reached out to the head of department of Gauteng's basic education department. And to his credit, Rodin, to his credit, not only did he say yes to an interview, he didn't even negotiate with me, which sometimes happens in journalism. You guys may not know this as listeners of the podcast. They Sometimes an interviewee does want to have a little bit of a discussion about what are you going to ask me questions about, which areas are going to be, can we agree, are going to be off-limits. As you can imagine, with my journalism, I almost never agree to such things because I think the accountability role in journalism demands that, in fact, you you should answer all questions if you are holding a position of public power in particular. And unlike Rodin, that's, that's you know, sort of stumbling over itself from a media strategy point of view, the head of department said, yes, I'm available immediately, 
um, and let's let's talk. You can ask me whatever whatever it is that you want me to ask. I said that's very generous of you, but I will actually tell you the two areas I want to explore. It's not to say I don't, um, you know, guarantee. You know, I don't. I can't guarantee that I'm not going to ask you awkward and important factual questions because you've been implicated in alleged political interference. Um, but I said to Mr. Edward Mosue, who is the Gauteng Education Department's um, head, that um, that I'm grateful that he has come for an open, unscripted interview. So have a listen to the conversation between me and him. Here it is. In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. I'm very grateful that the Department of Education in Gauteng has agreed to speak to us to try and understand a bit more from a political leadership point of view and specifically administrative leadership point of view, how one deals with deals with a school that experiences this kind of crisis. And of course, as you know, the head of department is Mr. Edward Mosue, and I'm grateful that he has agreed to come on to have an open conversation and to do so despite being very busy. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Thank you very much, Eusebius, uh, uh, for the opportunity to come through. I want to talk first about some of the facts that are not clear, Mr. Musuwe, before we talk about the principled issues. At what point did the department become aware that there seems to be a potentially problematic issue in relation to bullying, but also processes for dealing with bullying at Rodin. Shabas, thank you very much for, for this opportunity. And let me first indicate that as a department, we do not condone bullying. We do not condone any form of violation of another person's rights. And it is in that context and in this context that when we got to here, of the problems at Rodin and a parent bringing a matter to us that we got concerned. But maybe just to give a sense of the the manner in which this matter was reported to us mm. is that um, <clears throat> we received, and I personally received, a complaint for a parent who had alleged that their daughter had been kept on suspension for a period of over 20 days. Mm. And you would, you would know in terms of the South African Schools Act, we would always indicate that a governing body of a school, if it were a public school, but in this case, we would say the board may, after hearing a matter, suspend a learner from attending school mm-hmm. as a correctional measure. Mm. But that such period of suspension from direct physical contact at the school may not be for a period longer than one week. So it's a seven-day suspension. Mm. So when a matter was brought to our attention that this learner had actually been put away from attending class physically at school with other children for a period exceeding seven days, we felt that it was actually violating on the right of that child. Mm. And that is why we then sent out a team to Rodin to go and investigate. But before we even did, did that, it's because mm. Rodin is an independent school. 
And we know that independent schools belong to associations. Mm. Um, we were able to get in touch with the Independent uh, Schools Association of South Africa, ISASA, yes. to alert them that there was this particular matter with one of their member schools. And because it was their member school, and I must say that I received very good cooperation from mm. ISASA, that they actually went to the school, they expressed the view, and there was an agreement that the board would look into this matter and therefore allow the child back at school. Mm. So we were quite satisfied in, in terms of that. And I must hasten to indicate the reason why the department can intervene in such matters is that we are given, and as the accounting office and head of department, mm-hmm. I'm given the responsibility and powers to uh, to establish independent schools when they apply to be independent schools. Mm. Uh, that's in terms of the South African Schools Act. They can We can have public and independent schools. So Rodin is one of those and one of our good mm. schools for that better. So can I ask Are you, we, yeah. Yes, go, go ahead. Yeah, from being alerted by the distre- distre- distressed parent that her child is now three weeks as opposed to one week at home, as a form of punishment, the merits of which is is irrelevant for the moment. Um, Did you speak to the school leadership, the chairperson of the board that you are referring to? Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I I assume the parallel then with, say, a school governing body at a public school even, or the former Model C schools, the ones that I went to, is that the the board is pretty powerful the headmistress must be powerful how much direct phone to phone or email to email contact was there between yourself and the school leadership before you physically went to the school no uh, when we received the original complaint for the from the parent I did not go to the school. I, in fact, contacted ISASA. Mm. So my communication with the school was via ISASA at that point. Mm. And ISASA gave me feedback of the decisions that were reached at an initial meeting, which I was satisfied with. Mm. Uh, because from the, from the initial engagement between ISASA and the school on the basis of what I had referred to ISASA, there was an agreement that this matter would be looked into, it, the, the, the decision would be reviewed and the child would be allowed back to school. Mm-hmm. It was only after there had been a reneging of somewhat on that when the parent then informed us again that subsequent to the ISASA meeting, yes. for which he had received information and feedback, mm-hmm. that and we were satisfied that the matter is now resolved. Mm-hmm. that we then got information that then sought to suggest that the init- the, the feedback that would have been concluded on, on the matter between ISASA and the school, that such would not have taken place, was not being carried through. Okay. And that is why at that point, mm-hmm. we then, on the strength of an addition, of additional information from the, uh, the uh, parent of the child, who was allegedly suspended, contacted us. Then we said, we we sent our team to the school to go and understand the 
the matter so that there could be okay. further clarification and 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 understand why why on on the initial basis of what had been agreed with the member association okay. that there was uh, a reneging that makes complete and sense that, to me in terms of the timeline yeah. how many days lapsed between the parent giving you that new information and your delegation that had been seconded going to the school how many days did that take it was just a day a couple of hours what we, yeah what we're talking about we're talking about a matter that took place all of this happened between the the 20th no no um it happened between the 23rd and the 24th of of uh, of November. That's when I sent okay. the team. Yeah. To go so yes, yes. Let me be blunt about what what's lying behind my absolutely boring questions, <laughs> Mr. Masue. Please go ahead. Yeah. Here is what lies behind it. What do you say to a small strand of critics? Most of the attention is around the school, which we'll get to, as you and I agreed later. And I'll I'm losing you. Most of these issues have focused in the public space around how the school have handled it and how the parents are behaving, and we'll get to that. But there's also a small group of critics that have interestingly raised some concerns at how quickly the department acted on this matter. Is it standard policy to act that quickly and to go to the school, or should you not first have at least called the headmistress and say, is it true that the child is not back yet? Look, yes, and it's 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 not uncommon. We do it with every other, be it a public school, be an independent school, be any other school that is under our jurisdiction. Whether, let me give you an example. In a, it was in a public school in Flatfontein where we recently had a, a fatal. Uh, 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 stabbing of Elena. It mm-hmm. did not take us 24 hours. We went there. We listened to the community. We listened to the SDP. So when we know of a problem that exists, mm-hmm. it does not matter whether it is by X person or Y person. And if it warrants an attention, we would do that. And that is why in this case, as an example, yeah, at the first point when this matter was brought to our attention, we took it I did not go to the school directly. Hear me out, you said yes. Mm. I I did not go to the school immediately when that matter was brought to my attention. We took it to Isasa. So twenty four hours period lapses. That Isasa then the following day goes and intervenes and deals with their member school. Okay. So I would I would then say. As a matter of fact, it could have been over 48 hours because it was not even 24 hours. Mm. But there's a process that we followed that we did not jump. And here, and, and let me tell you why, why it becomes important. And it does not only apply for this child. And, and I, I would hope all other parents and schools would take heed of this. Mm. We are talking about a child, a 10 year or an 11 year old child who must be in school. Notwithstanding what the parents and other people may be doing, we have a a constitutional responsibility to make sure that the principles of fairness are applied. And I'm not saying in this case the school may have acted whatever the case, but for the fact that a child, in my view, had been kept out of school for 20 days is what caused alarm on my side. And I felt that it was important that the department also had to intervene. But in our intervention, for that matter, 
It was not an intervention to try and find fault, but it was an intervention to try to make sure that the rights of the child are not violated. And I on think it's an important question. On that particular question, Mr. Masue, what yes. in the 21 days did you ask the school? And I honestly don't know the answer myself because the school is being cagey. What happened to the child at home? So, for example, if we're going to test substantively whether the right of education was violated, we better have our uh, ducks in a rose at apartment. Was the child sitting at home, Nje, or were they receiving full education at home? I'm not sure, uh, Eusebius, I, I lost you, but in terms of full education, and clearly I'm sure you would know that anything that is not physical, physical presence at a school may not be full education, maybe online. In this case, for a 10-year-old, uh, we know that and we we proved we proved it during COVID time that notwithstanding online learning that we had, researchers would always tell us that the best place for children to learn was in a classroom interaction with teachers, and that 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 is the that is the basis. But that's besides the point. What you, because you are asking, what did we find? When remember, as the as the head of department, I have had to go back to the school. Yeah, I sent a team of officials. That deal with, um, that deal with, uh, independent schools. I would call them a, I would say in this case, a registrar of independent schools, mm-hmm. uh, who, who then went and went to the, to the school to intervene on a matter that would also seek to ensure that the school would always comply with its post registration requirements. Remember, when independent schools, and I think it's, a, it's an important point to make, when in independent schools are, are, are registered, there are requirements that they must meet. And remember, when we register an independent school in any way, be, be it Rodin or any other school, is that it must always maintain the same standards, if not more, of what we would be offering in a public school. But this is what they would say in response, I think, if they bothered to actually engage us. They would say something like the following, and I'm playing devil's advocate, that the rights of all children matter if one child displays suicidation and there is an internal process that finds three girls guilty, sanction them with online teaching at home, you mitigate the worst aspects of being at home because you still have some education, but the upside of not having them physically back at school, they will say that you're right, it's better for the child to be physically back at school, but the gain of keeping them at home, given that they've been found guilty of bullying, is that the other children's right to a safe environment is also emphasized and entrenched. You said yes, we can go into the merits of the case, but here's what I would say, and 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 as I indicated earlier on, yeah. in terms of the South African Schools Act, and I'm now quoting from the Act myself. Mm-hmm. I say, a governing body of a school, and in this case, I would say the board, may after hearing a suspended, um, may after a hearing suspend a learner as they see fit from attending school as a correctional measure. But it must not be more than seven days. Mm. You see, that's that's the that's the crux, and the whole reason why when this matter was brought to my attention, I was not 
worried about that the school did not follow process, whatever the case, that's a separate debate. For me, what is of crucial importance is a 20-day period post the suspension. Which but don't I you lose the context in. if you do that, um, um, Mr. Masuwe, in the following sense, and this is the third last question. You and I are not going into the merits of the actual case, but let's, for argument's sake, accept mm. the authority of the internal school processes. If they arrive at the conclusion that this exceptional case merits this sanction, is it sufficient to pull that particular part of the act out as a slam dunk response? It would remain. And let me tell you, a, a sanction can also come to a point of expulsion. Mm. So, so I'm trying to, 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 to juxtapose this through. Yeah. That you suspend for a period of seven days unless you issue out a verdict of expulsion. If they had said on the basis of a finding, they would have expelled this child because of A, B, C, and D without necessarily going, I don't want to go into the merits of the case. For sure. But we would provide for her subject to the following until the, the year is over. That would have been another case. But at this point in time, all the information that I have at my disposal, mm. which my, my, the team that I also sent, uh, also had suggested that it was beyond the normal legislated process of seven mm. days. And that's why we acted. Had it been that on the basis, and I don't want to go, I, I, not necessarily, I'm not going into the merits of the case, but had it been that the board would have arrived at the conclusion that we are expelling, it is uh, after the hearing, this is a violation that warrants expulsion. Yeah. We would not even interview because they would have taken the decision and the parents had the, the recourse. Yeah. To I, go yeah, yeah. And, mm. and deal and deal with this matter on appeal in whatever way. But in this mm. case, mm. in my view, the two things. I'm talking about a child who must be in class. Yeah. But two, I'm talking about a potential violation of a a provision in our regulations that Mm. deal with disciplinary cases. Okay. Second last. Second last question. The last question is a bigger issue, but this is still the second last question. Um, (laughs) I've seen correspondence, Mr. Mosue, where Mm -hmm. the school is suggesting to one of the parents in the matter that they are not of the view that the alleged bully should come back to school, but that the officials literally threatened them with deregistration. They were threatened with deregistration, they claim, if they did not let the, the child back at school. How do you respond to that allegation? Because that sounds like trampling on their authority. The information that I have from my official uh, is far from that. And I would, I would, I would hate to believe that they would uh, put it bluntly and say it, you w- would deregister you. But here's what I think may have been communicated. And I'm not sure mm. uh, because all I know is that for every other independent school, 
once registered, there are post-registration requirements, Eusebius. Mm. Among post-registration requirements, if you if you start a school and all of a sudden you don't have the necessary uh, uh, everything that you said you you will have in respect of of policies and qualified teachers and related matters, it is sufficient grounds for deregistration. So, mm. But it, that I'm just talking to some of the elements. There's always a checklist of what are the necessary things. So if a school, an independent school, having been registered, then does not have policies on how it would administer issues as we are talking about now, it may suggest that it is also flouting a post-registration requirement. And should an audit be carried out, the likelihood is that they may be put on terms. But as I say, I've not seen what they, but there are post-registration requirements that all independent schools have to comply with. And I would assume that may have been spoken in that context. But as I say, the officials of the department that went there are the ones that actually deal with this on a daily basis. And they would have been able to communicate to the school what those post-registration requirements are. Nonetheless, I still expect a school like Rodin as a, a, a well-run school to have those, those, uh, those policies and, and, and require, uh, requirements. Which brings me to my last question. What I've also seen, which indicts the school, is reports by the school psychologist that it's not a safe environment. And this incident is not the first time that there's been bullying at the school. It's just one that's blown up in the media. What is your assessment of the school? Because on the face of it, they do not seem to have created a conducive environment for healthy learning and safe learning to take place. You say that I may may not be aware of such incidents, uh, previous incidents. The only incident that I would have come across is this one that has just been reported. But if it were to be, it, it would be an unfortunate situation for a school of Rodin's uh, nature. Uh, but in this, uh, and, and because you are also raising it in this our conversation, I will actually take it upon myself to also send it back to Isasa. But I'm, I should also indicate that I had also wanted to meet with the board of Rodin to discuss some of these matters, because my sense is uh, this matter has been blown completely out of proportion in the way that it was handled. I think it parents, and at this point, in fact, my sense is that I have picked up as if this is a fight of parents as opposed to children. Because mm. if I go to under, if I go to understand what we are dealing with here, is about a a young girl who immigrated back, immigrated to South Africa, who, if I listen to what my colleagues were talking about, is uh, would have felt that some of the these other young ones who she found back at the school did not necessarily want to play with her, and they, at one point they were in another game. But look, look, as I say, I do not know. But from what the report. I'm receiving it begins to suggest that the school could have done better in respect of uh, accommodating all of these young people 
uh, in a manner that would make the situation more conducive for mm. all of them. Mm. Regrettably, I think the parents of these learners acted in a manner that have actually caused this matter to be even worse. But which yeah. also then brings me to another point mm. that at particular time when parents leave children, when they send children to school, they must remember that the education department and our teachers for that matter mm. have a responsibility to act in, in terms of local parentees. Absolutely. And I would, I would hope that such parents, when they have these cases, they would allow the teachers, and we have many fantastic teachers in our schools, I can tell you, and I'm sure Rodin. I've, in fact, I've known some of people whose children have gone to Rodin, and mm. they've just spoken highly of the school. Mm. So it is in that context that I think this particular case was badly managed, and Absolutely. it, it big, badly managed. Mm. It has actually tainted the image of the school, and the, the school must now build up its reputation in terms of how it manages these matters going forward. But I think it's a lesson not only to Rodin, it's a lesson to all other schools, that when you find yourself in a situation like this, deal with the merits, deal with these matters on principle, and ensure that there is constructive uh, uh, discipline, a positive discipline on the side of the learners. Mr. Masuwa, thanks so much for engaging me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. So there's a couple of things there that you must make up your own mind. There's a factual question of whether they had done enough between the aggrieved parents reaching out to them and them following to the letter the process of reaching out to the school leadership before arriving there. Because one's got to ask, did you ask the school, when is it convenient? When can we convene a meeting? Can you send us all the documentation for why you did not agree with... Isasa or whatever the case might be, that it's now unlawful for the child to be at home after seven days. How do you respond to us thinking that online education is not adequate to meet the right to education? So there's a lot of issues there for you to think through as you judge for yourself whether you think the HOD successfully articulated their concerns about the right of education of the, the alleged bully having been violated. But then there's this last piece, which for me is setting us up nicely for episode two. When the HOD says, you know, this could have been dealt with easily, it didn't have to blow up, um, and this is a new child who's there, and the other children were... What he is saying, and it comes from... It doesn't come from a, from a bad place, I'm sure, is children will be children. You know, that's the subtext. There's always a little bit of taunting of a new person who comes into the environment. That's a complicated question. A brilliant expert in these matters is Luke Lumbrecht. He is my guest in episode two, who's going to help us to understand when should we not lose sleep and intervene when there are certain dynamics between children that play out in the sports field, in the locker room, in the classroom, excursions. And at what point is the behavior behavior that requires us to discipline them using the policies of the school? But crucially, what Luke is also going to do is to tell us how best to deal with a child that is found guilty of bullying. And 
I think you're going to enjoy episode two quite a bit because to let the cat out of the bag just a little bit without the detail, Lucas of the opinion that the school made some pretty serious mistakes in how it responded to the bullying. So on the one hand, he would not agree with the Department of Education that this was a non-issue that was blown out of proportion. But he also disagrees with how the school had handled it. And if you want to understand why he holds those viewpoints and learn a lot yourself about bullying, which is a word we bandy about, but we don't examine in a rigorous manner, please make sure that you listen to part two in the series focusing on Rodine and bullying lessons for the entire education system.